This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCute, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. Welcome back to another episode of Good Things Guy. I am so excited to have this guest on today. We have traveled a long road around South Africa, sometimes the globe, where we get to do really good things, perform good work with charities. Catherine Constantinides. <laughs> and I've practiced it so hard. I can. I, she's one of my really good friends and I can't say her surname correctly. I'm going to try this one more time. Catherine Constantinides. That was really nearly perfect. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome Thank to the you. show. It's great to have you here. South Africa, we've been through a really rough spot. The world, this global pandemic, it's been traumatic. Ah, the word unprecedented, which I hate, but none more so for people that have actually suffered with corona, with COVID. It's bizarre because, because it's something that is out of reach, because it's this idea that's just around the corner. Because we're wearing masks, because we're trying to stay away from it, a lot of us tend to not really come into contact with corona. And a lot of us, I mean now especially, I think it's almost 190 days of lockdown, maybe, maybe more, in South Africa. A lot of people have become apathetic to sure. this idea. And, and some people are feeling like, is it real? Like, is it? What's going on? And then you speak to or you can follow, or you see someone like yourself, good friend of mine, who got COVID and nearly died. Mm. Then you know it's real. And that's something that you went through. When did you first know that, that, this, that you had COVID? So next week's going to be 16 weeks, and it'll be 16 weeks since I was diagnosed COVID positive. I'll never, never, ever forget the day. It was actually at about 10 o'clock at night. I kept phoning the lab, kept phoning the lab because I tested twice. The first test, something happened and they said, please come and test again. Second test took like three, four days and I'll never forget it was a Sunday night and I kept calling them, kept calling and they said, phone later, phone later. It was about half past 10 at night. I called and they said, sorry to inform you, you are COVID positive. By that stage, I had already known I was positive, but hearing it from somebody and they tell you, yes, you are positive, I, I cried so much. You're so overwhelmed with emotion. I think that the world, we were drowned in information, in panic, in well, the, fear. The, this is the thing, right, is even 16 weeks ago, there were these websites set up. There were apps that you could download. There was the Worldometer, whatever it's called. There were coronavirus global, the World Health Organization, there was this wealth of information, but it was actually just noise. It was noise. And Brent, I had it, we had been in lockdown for three, four months already, and I still just didn't know, now what? You don't know. And everything kind of passes you by. It's as if your life stops. And everything else is carrying on, but you're stopped and you're in a space. I was in isolation for 24 days. That was really difficult. I live in a house with five other people, and to know that I could potentially have infected my little boy and my mom specifically. Because your, mom, your mom's was, older, right? So that really older, puts her at she's risk. She's had heart attacks. She's very, uh, you know, her health is at risk. Absolutely. And so you, you lie in bed in a room. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You know you're currently still positive. You can't go out in the house and you can't be with people. 
and you have a little boy that sits outside your room and he cries at night because all he wants is to be with mama. And he says to me, you know, he will, he'd rather get COVID and be COVID positive with me. He can't do not being with me. And that was difficult. Even weeks after, when I started to get a little bit better, I was stronger, I was up and about, one day he saw me taking my medicine, not knowing because now I've got to take so much medication and I have to take like a pump and I have to do all these things, not knowing or thinking about it. I took the medication, I was in front of him and he burst out into tears and he said to me, nobody understands what it's like to have a mama with COVID. And I realized that children are resilient but we take for granted that they are so filled with emotions. They have their own minds, their own thoughts. They perceive things in their own way. And so this was something that didn't just affect me, but it affected everyone else. But weeks later, I realized that the symptoms are so different. I now have something called long COVID, and I'm connected to an entire global community of people who are still suffering. Well, this, this is why we've brought you in today, and I can yeah. see with your breathing right now, you still have complications from what some people are deeming as flu. That's not normal. That's not, this is not normal. You having breathing problems 16 weeks later yeah. is not a normal thing. Where are we with your health right now? So I, I breathe and I feel like I'm filled with concrete and I'm, my lungs just don't expand. It's a lot better. I could literally not have this conversation with you even maybe three, four weeks ago because I would be completely out of breath. I often feel like I, I wake up, I feel like I've run a marathon in my sleep because my heart rate is so high but my blood pressure is so low. I'm seeing an excellent pulmonologist but I'm on constant medication which I don't take medication for a headache, never mind now having to take all this medication. But what I realize is that we're fighting something that we don't know and the doctors have been straightforward with me. Every time I go it's weeks later there's more information. We now have to change medication, we have to do things differently. I'll take medication that does one thing for my lung but does something else to my heart. And so it's a constant experiment. But I thank God for my life. I know so many people who have lost mm. family members, who, who have died themselves. I'm grateful that I'm alive. I just have to pace myself differently and I have to take a very different journey into the work that I do. We uh, opened the show by saying near death because self-isolation, so you're alone in a room. Yeah. It's the middle of the night, can't breathe. Did you have moments that you were just absolutely fearful? There were nights where I refused to sleep because I didn't know if I'd be able to wake up the next morning because trying to breathe was such a struggle. You're then crying because you're so angry that you cannot breathe. You want to rip your lungs out because they're just not doing anything. You're constantly, your body is in pain. I didn't have any flu symptoms. I did not get a single flu symptom, no loss of taste or smell, but the body pain, the migraines, constant blackouts, all that kind of thing, those were my symptoms. So I didn't think I had COVID right in the beginning. But those first, I would say, six, seven weeks were excruciating. There were days that I don't remember. I don't remember getting up and, and sleeping that night because it's a blur. It is such an intense experience and it's different for everyone. And what we don't realize is the worst thing is people look at you and they think, oh no, you, oh, you look great, you look fine. But what they don't realize is that inside my body it looks like a war zone. Mm. And I'm fighting every single day to make it through the day and to fight this disease that has accumulated my entire existence for 16 weeks. We have to be kinder to each other, like you always say, yeah. because you don't know what people are going through. 
You you were relatively healthy before, right? Like, did you have complications? Were you in the at-risk space? Friends, last year I ran the Sahara Marathon. I am no athlete, but I trained and I worked towards making that goal possible. And I did that for the Sahara people, and that's a whole different story. But I did that. That was 18 months ago. I look after my health. I know that there are genes in our family that I need to be strong and healthy and fit. Not for any other reason, but because I want to run up a flight of stairs and not feel like I'm going to die when I get to the top. And I'm not overweight. I don't have any ailments. And yet, it Oops. absolutely it obliterated me. It obliterated you. One of the things that I am so proud of you for doing is very early on, early on into this experience for you, you decided to share it with the world. You're an influencer. You have people that follow you. You're a celebrity. People know you. They know Catherine. <laughs> they know you. And you decided to put your face out there with this virus. You decided to step up and go, I have it, and this is what I'm going through. And I still remember that first post, one of the first posts that you put up. No makeup. You looked like, I mean, you looked sick. <laughs> You looked sick and you were brave enough to stand up and go, like, let's break the stigma. Let's talk about it. I've got it. Let's talk about this. I get goosebumps thinking about it because it was, a, it was an emotional decision. At the time I was sick, I'd already gone through probably a week, 10 days of intense, intense um, symptoms. I couldn't breathe. And as much as I... I battled, do I share this or don't I? And I realized I need to share this because I need people to understand that this thing is real and this thing is affecting, it affects you and me. It's not someone some way, it's us, it's our circles, it's our community. And I took that picture and I decided I'm going to put myself as vulnerable and raw as I can be there because I want people to be able to understand. Yes, they see me fighting, they see me being strong, they see me being an activist, but they need to understand that on the other side of this is a global pandemic that has hit somebody that they can connect to. And I tried to share my journey as best as I could. There were days where I just couldn't. There, there are still hundreds of DMs and messages that have gone unread and unresponded to, but I've needed to pace myself. But what I needed to do was share a real honest journey of the struggle and the pain Prior to having COVID, I saw so many people on social media who had COVID and shared it, but they were out and about, they were living their best lives in isolation at home, doing their thing. And I thought, why is that not me? Why don't I have that COVID? And it was because of that that I needed to share the kind of COVID that I was going through. Because I think that you need, you need to be real. And I needed, what I didn't know I, I would get in return was a strength from people that really reached out and even though there's the stigma, and the stigma that we often don't realize, we don't realize that we're like, can we hug or not? Mm. Are you okay? Can I come into your space? I, I'm completely immune now, but people still are scared of being in my space. Well, that, that, I mean, I wanted to bring that up. The victimization and the shame yeah. that comes with being brave is a reality. Did you face any of that? First question, but do you know how you got it? It's as if it was like you went to a bad place and you got this bad thing. <laughs> And it was like, you know, do you know how you got it? Don't worry about how I got it. Ask me how I am. Yeah. Ask me, did I survive the night? Because there were nights where I didn't know that I'd survive. And it was hard. And when everyone expects you to be strong, no one really cares if you're not strong. 
And that's a hard thing to deal with. And so... I think... So I can relate to that fully. Being the good things guy, this, this character, which is real, but it's still yeah. a character, I'm still human and flawed. And I have good days and I have bad days. Yeah. And there's this expectation that you'll fit into a box. And you are a strong, independent, powerful woman who fights for other people who cannot fight for themselves. How dare you yeah. be vulnerable? It's like... Is that, it was, is that real? Is that a good synopsis? That's a good synopsis. And I think people don't even realize they're doing it. You know, they, they, there's this shame about having had COVID or, or uh, being COVID positive. And people just, unfortunately, we have to unlearn those behaviors. Mm. Society has to unlearn those behaviors. At the same time, in this 15, 16 weeks, I, I learned so many things about myself. Engaging with people on social media. I don't fear... I can go now and wash my face. I can go. I can sit here with no makeup on. I have no scam to do that. Really, I don't. The, the thing that we have to realize is that life is fragile. It's mm. precious. And nobody's promised tomorrow. It doesn't matter who you are. You're not invincible. And I think that we have to understand that we must actually declutter our lives from the things that we get so obsessed about. And we must mat what must matter must be now, this conversation, this moment, because we don't know that we're going to have it again. When I leave here today and I say goodbye to you, I don't know that that will be the last time I'll ever see you. Yes, we'll plan to do this and plan to do that, but life is really, really precious. It's fragile, and we have to unlearn the behaviors that we have innately in us as a society, because we must be able to connect with each other's vulnerabilities. Someone who is so busy, like I said, we've worked together for many years on different charities and all sorts of things, but your, your big passion has always been the environment, yep. to look after the environment, and then uh, people in environments. So you've got those two sure. things, right? So, yeah, during COVID, and once you were a bit better, you got involved with food programs and you were helping the people of South Africa, but you had big plans for this year with regards to the environment. Absolutely. This was the year of the environment. This was the year for climate change. And globally, there were so many conferences set up, so many important meetings that were going to take place. This was definitely going to be that, that breaking point, that point that we would remember in the trajectory of attacking climate change and, and trying to, to address the climate emergency. That was wiped off the table. The pandemic had to become the focus, which we understand. But... Now when we're actually building better, we're taking down barriers, we're trying to find a new norm, trying to build back economies the world over, what I think we have to also understand is that the environment and climate change is intrinsically linked as to how we move forward and how we build back better. And I think that it's important that we start to amplify the voice of climate change again because the economies cannot survive, we cannot survive in a world where we're damaging the world we're living in without actually noticing. We have to be better citizens and we have to live better with nature and we're just not yet doing that. So a little quick sidestep, um, but there's an incredible, incredible documentary that is on Netflix right now, not sponsored, um, <laughs> uh, by David Attenborough. And at 93 years old, he takes his life and what he's done and um, worked in all different spaces and in the environment. And he gives solutions as to how, South Africa, how, how the, the people globe. of the globe can help with climate change. It's, oh, it's a really amazing. beautiful documentary. You should go watch I'm going to go watch it. He's also just joined Instagram at 93 years old. <laughs> <laughs> mad, mad. Kath, the reason I brought up the environment and the work that you do is you are busy. Like, generally, if people follow you on social media, they'll see 
You are here one day, there the next day, planting trees, caring for people, doing the environment, feeding, at a charity, doing something. How did you cope with now being bedbound oh. during that time? You know, it, lockdown was one thing because lockdown made me stop and pause. I was in Joburg for longer than I think I've been in maybe five or six years. It was such a different experience, but it was soulful, especially those first few months. It was soulful because I got to be at home with my little boy. We spent time doing things that we would ordinarily probably never have done. And so that was great. And I then get COVID and I'm then literally in bed and I'm stuck in a room. I'm stuck in a room for weeks. And you have, you, you know, when we talk about mental health, when we talk about emotional well-being, mental health, health is so important. And even for people who are strong, we're so strong, we're so brave to our detriment. But when you're in that space and you're confined by four walls and you can do nothing, you realize the fragility of the mind, mm. of the body. You realize how dependent we are on other human beings, being in their spaces. And you start to question the things that you've done, the things that you want to do, the things that you didn't get a chance to do, or the things you said no to, the things that you really wish you never had said no to. And so that pause was, I wouldn't say it was a good thing, but it was a reflective thing. It was mm. an opportunity to to pause and to understand how fragile the mind really can be. And I think that we take for granted the strong people in our lives, what they potentially go through on a daily basis, what they have to deal with, and the weight that they carry on their shoulders. No matter who they are and what they do, we must never take that for granted. And I learned, I learned different things about myself and the way I engage and the way I want to engage with people. When I have a conversation, I want it to be in-depth and meaningful. And when I ask somebody how they are, I really do want to know how they are. The same way when people say, oh, you look great, you're fine. Mm. And I want to have a heart attack because I'm really not fine. And you don't know how hard today was or yesterday was. And we really have to be deliberate about being better people. Purposeful. Purposeful. I found over, over COVID and, and the lockdown that I've started saying I love you. And not, I've always said I love you to my mom and dad. I've always said I love you to the kids, to my fiance. The, the love you has always been there. But I've started saying it to the most random people that I do love, clients. I'll literally go, I love you. Because I want you to know that yeah. I have a deep love for you. Mm. And even though you may be a client, you really are special to me. Mm. And we spoke a little bit earlier about how life is so fragile and tomorrow is promised to no one. I think that's been a great realization for me is that, you know, be, love louder is what, yeah, sometimes what I say, love louder. Yeah. Um, okay, one of the big things that, that has been a passion project for yours for the last couple of years that I'm sure many of the viewers and listeners might not even know about mm -hmm. is the people of the West Sahara. What is going on there? What is going down in Africa? So, what we don't know is that up in North Africa, Morocco illegally occupies another country called Western Sahara, which is directly south of Morocco and directly north of Mauritania. So, Western Sahara sits right in the middle of these two countries. And is it a big country? It is a significant sized country and it has a full coastline, so it has a very rich fishing coast. And 
What we don't know is that Morocco exports, well, part of their economy is that they export 70% of all of the fish that's exported from Africa comes from that region. However, it is fished from Western Sahara. And so they are exploiting the natural resources in a country and have been since 1975. Prior to 1975, Spain colonized Western Sahara. And what they did in 1975 was they left as the colonizing power but signed something called the Madrid Accord, which is almost to the day, the anniversary. And the Madrid Accord said, if you would like, Morocco and Mauritania, you may take this land, but we want a percentage of the natural resources that are sold or traded, and we'll leave as the occupying power, or as the colonizing power, rather. There was an actual armed war, and that war lasted from 1975 to 1991. And in 1991, the United Nations promised that there would be a referendum held within six months. To date, that referendum has never come to light. And these people are divided by a wall, and some live in the occupied territory under occupation, military occupation. But you, but you I mean, earlier on when we spoke, you said uh, off camera, the wall is the second... Second longest wall in the world, next to the Great Wall of China, right here in Africa. Dividing, dividing the same people. Dividing the same people. Morocco was very strategic. They divided the people by this physical wall. It's not just a wall. It's four layers deep, and on either side of this wall are 10 million landmines. The landmines also do not have geographical exact locations, so every time it rains, they move in the ground. So you don't know where all the landmines are, but they're alongside what is called the Wall of Shame. And in fact, that is why I ran the Sahara Marathon, because I have two legs, and I work with people who have no legs in those refugee camps. You go there, you go before pre-COVID, yeah. um, you were going there quite often to the refugee yes, camps. Yes, absolutely. I go there, it's like my second home. Never in my life did I think I'd have withdrawal symptoms from a refugee camp. But I do. I miss my families, the children there. And I was actually in the camps when lockdown was announced, so made my way home. I was on the last flight out of Algeria to come back to South Africa. And um, those people live with less than nothing. They live with less than nothing in a land that is it's unlivable. Desert. It's desert. It's desert. It's the middle of the Sahara. Unlivable land, unlivable conditions, 50 degree heat in the summer. They can't grow anything. There are unbelievable hydroponic projects that are happening now. Some incredible things happening. But they live on a double-edged sword. Are they, if I have to call them forgotten people, are they forgotten? They are absolutely forgotten. I always call them the forgotten people of Africa, and they're the last colony in Africa. Absolutely. And I just, like, so I follow you. We're friends. I see you go there. I see you handing out food. I see you doing these things. I had no clue that that was happening in a neighboring country from mine. That's harrowing to me. That is in the year 2020, that there are people that are being suppressed. They are citizens in their own country, but they are refugees in their own country. It's, it's mad. It is mad. So what Morocco did was the occupation in Western Sahara, Morocco will tell you it's southern Morocco, but Western Sahara is an independent country. It is not Morocco. The wall divides the people. The people that are in the refugee camps are actually in southwest Algeria where they live with this different kind of freedom. So those that are in the occupied territory live with fear every day because of the military occupation. But those in the refugee camps are, are safer because they are and they're self-governed self by their people. They have a democratic government. How many that, people are in a refugee in that refugee camp? Unfortunately, there are more than 200,000 people who are living there in that refugee camp with no access to water or food, 
they live in tents, they live in They're not living, they, they're surviving. They, you said it. That's, You've all said that's, it. that's all that's happening. So you go there, you're helping feeding families, you do quite a lot of work. But if someone heard this story for the first time right now, what the hell do they do? There's a few things. Firstly, don't just listen to what we've said and the discussion we've had. Go and Google it for yourself. Go and find the information and learn. I would ask you to follow the journey, follow the things that I'm sharing. And if you want to do something, if you want to feed children, if you want to help children to go to school, we need to financially support the Saharawi people. But also, if you want to be able to send a message, use the hashtag stand in the sand. They are stuck in the Saharan sand. And the only thing we can do is stand in solidarity with them. They have no toilets, but they have access to social media, the way of the world. So they go and they look for this hashtag, stand in the sand, to look for messages of solidarity. Tag me in posts if you use uh, the hashtag. Put it on Instagram, put it on Twitter, and learn more about them. It cannot be that Africa will ever progress if these things are happening behind black curtains where countries are holding us ransom because of resources that they want to gain a foot forward with but these resources and unfortunately Morocco has raped the land of Western Sahara with its resources that were meant to build an economy for the people of Western Sahara but in my lifetime the Sahrawi children will return home that is my promise to those children I don't care how long it takes and what it takes but I will continue to fight the Moroccan regime and I will fight it on all fronts because this injustice we cannot I cannot have lived with these people and not do something with the voice that I have I love you and I love you. And I'm very thankful for you. And I'm thankful Thank for your you. heart. And I'm thankful for all you do, um, you. not just for the people of South Africa, but for the people of Africa and the globe. Thank you you so are an earth angel, if oh. there ever was one. And I want to thank you for spending time with me today um, on the show. I've got a big lump in my throat, so I have to go. <laughs> if you want to follow Catherine, you're going to have to search for a very long surname, which I'm going to try to get right again. Catherine <laughs> Catherine Constantinides. No, nope, that's not it. Where do people find you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram, Change Agent SA, because those platforms said my name was too long. Change Agent SA, Instagram and Twitter, and Facebook, Catherine Constantinides. Or just go to Bren's page, look for the long name, and you'll find me. <laughs> that's it. Um, I just want to say that we need to reach out and learn more about the people that surround us. It doesn't have to be all the way at the tip of Africa. It could be down the road from you Absolutely. that people need help. And you need to get involved. The only way we rise is if we lift each other. That's the truth. I'm um, wishing you only good things. And uh, always what I say, just be kind. I'm Brent Lindeke, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy, and you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate, or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM, or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks, and only good things.